Alright, well, track down a Bible if you can and get with me to Psalm chapter 30. Uh, I'm so glad that we can um, continue to do church in this way. I know that this is unconventional, but uh, thank you for doing church online, and I look forward to being live and in person together with you. Um, I miss so badly getting that feedback from your faces and your body language and all of that, and so uh, preaching to a camera is um, something I will gladly move along from as soon as possible. Um, psalm chapter 30 is a psalm of David, and it is a psalm that helps us to recognize how to become unshakable in the way that we worship. We're doing a series right now called Unshakable, and we're trying to figure out that, you know, how in the midst of everything that's happening in our world, um, how, how is it that we could navigate this experience in a way that is unshakable? Um, so let's go ahead and read the psalm. And uh, then we'll get to work. Psalm chapter 30. Uh, we're going to read the whole thing. This is a psalm, a song for the dedication of the temple of David. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths, and you did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I'm silenced, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. Let's pray. Lord, right now we ask that as we open your word together, that you would speak over each of us, that you would help us to hear your voice by your spirit. We pray, God, that we could be an unshakable people, both as individuals and as a church. And we pray, God, that you would teach us how to worship you in a way that is an immovable mountain. Help us to become that. Help us to do that. Help us to honor you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, as I think about being an unshakable worshiper, I'm reminded of the story of Paul and Silas in the book of Acts. Uh, the apostle Paul was engaged in, in ministry, and um, he, because of his faithfulness to his ministry, he was arrested. There was a persecution that was going on. Paul and Silas were um, kind of attacked by a mob and they were flogged and then they were thrown into prison and um, and as that was happening um, they were thrown into prison and it tells us in verse 25 of Acts 16 that at about midnight they were praying and singing hymns they they figured out how to worship God when everything around them was chaotic that having been flogged and imprisoned and and uh, then you know arrested and placed in that jail cell, they were worshiping, 
praying and worshiping. And that's what I'm trying to think through together with you. How is it that we could become people who can worship God no matter what the circumstances are? So we've been at this for a while now, and many of you are watching from home right now, and maybe you're all by yourself, or maybe you're with your immediate family. But what the Bible reminds us is that it is possible to worship God even if it's just two people. It's possible to worship God even if it's just one person. And even if those people are in prison, there's an ability to worship God in the midst of calamity and hardship in a way that's pleasing to God. That's what we're trying to figure out how to do. Now, Psalm 30 helps us to do that because right in the middle of the psalm is a key to being unshakable as we worship. And you'll see it as we come to it in due time, but the psalm itself is teaching us how to become unshakable worshipers. So we're going to see here in the psalm, we're going to see that God is worthy of our praise for a few different reasons. He's worthy of our praise because he's able to rescue. That's the first thing we see in verses 1 to 3. But he's also worthy of our praise because he is a revealing God. Not only does he rescue us, but in the midst of that rescue, he's, he's doing a heart work that's actually beneficial for us and for our good. So he's a rescuing God, he's a revealing God, he's also a restoring God. Toward the end of the psalm, in the last two verses, we see that David is restored to this situation where he's able to say, I went through this traumatic experience and I came out on the other side a worshiper. So let's get to work. First we see God being praised for his rescuing work in verses 1 to 3. God is worthy of our praise because he is the kind of God who can rescue us. So verse 1 reads like this, I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths. And you did not let my enemies gloat over me. I will exalt you, Lord. I will lift high your name because of the work that you've done. You've lifted me out of the depths. One of the um, experiences that I had as a young adult, my first vehicle uh, was a Jeep Wrangler. And my parents own a lot of land. And so this Jeep Wrangler was, uh, you know, this awesome vehicle of mine that I loved. And I had so much fun with it. And my parents have uh, an enormous amount of property with trails and creeks and all kinds of different things. And so my buddies and I, we took my Jeep out to the back of the farm. We were driving around on these trails and it was actually a, a season that was pretty flooded. And so it was really wet and swampy. And the the creek had a, a place where you could um, go across it. The, the road went up to it and it was kind of a shallower spot. And so you could drive across but it was very flooded. So I'm in my Jeep with my friends and we're about to forge the creek and we're gonna get over to the other side and I know it's deep and I think I'll just go a little bit faster than usual and we should be fine. So I drive my Jeep down into the creek and I submerge it. It goes underwater, it takes on water and the engine stalls out and we just abandon ship. We jump out, we go back to the shore and I'm looking at my Jeep having sunken down, and I'm thinking to myself, with only the awareness that a juvenile can have, what on earth have I done, right? I don't know if you ever had a decision that you've made where you feel that way before, where you think, what have I done here? 
And so I quickly run back to the house and I find my dad and I tell him, Dad, I, I drove my Jeep into the creek and I sank it and it's in the creek now and I don't know what to do and I'm so sorry. And dad says, okay, let's go. And we hop in a vehicle and we go and we find uh, this massive tractor and we drive that thing out through you know, the swampy areas and all the way up to the creek and then we strap a chain to the Jeep and to the tractor and we pull the Jeep out of the water. And that's kind of a picture of what David is explaining here. He's saying that I was going down and you scooped me out. You lifted me out of the depths. David was having a traumatic experience where he felt as though he were being submerged. And the only thing that he could do was to cry out for help. And God, like this giant tractor, comes along and pulls him out of that experience. I exalt you, Lord, because of your rescuing work. We pulled my Jeep back to the house and then we began that restorative work and that's exactly what what David is describing here that God had done something for him that resulted in him being rescued not only that God did not even allow his enemies to gloat over him in that situation of despair and so God rescued him and for that David is saying therefore I worship you I exalt in you I do that because you are the God who hears and answers prayer. Lord, so verse 2 says, Lord my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. I looked to you and you are the one who came and rescued me. You healed me. Maybe David was literally sick given the language it sounds like it, that he was actually dying in this moment and he looked to God and he cried out to God and he asked for God's help and God heard and responded. Now, as we begin to think about how this applies to our lives and to the situation we find ourselves in, we can apply this in a variety of different ways, but many of us are going through a traumatic experience right now where we can say with David, I feel as though I am sinking to the very depths, that I'm going under, that I'm being submerged. I feel as though financially some people are in that situation, emotionally some people are in that situation right now. And we need to become people who are saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look to God in this moment. I'm going to call to him for help. I'm going to make this prayer not just a generic prayer, but I'm going to begin to relate to God as my God. Lord, my God, I'm calling to you for help. I want to encourage you this morning that you would pray to God in that way, that you would look to God in this moment and say, look, I know that I'm sinking I'm going to stop trying to bail myself out. I'm going to stop trying to figure out how I can solve this. And instead, I'm going to turn to God. And I'm going to cry out to God. I'm going to pray that God would hear me and my plea, my cry. And he would come to my rescue. And we find that God does that and he heals. Verse 3, you, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. David is saying then that he has been redeemed, that God had rescued him from the realm of Sheol, from the very depths of the earth. He has been spared from going down to the pit. So, you know, as we look at this, this psalm and we're thinking about how we can become unshaking worshipers, we find that the first thing that we do is we acknowledge God as a saving or rescuing God. We cry out to him for help and we find him to be not only willing but eager to come to our aid and come to our rescue. Now it's in good form that we would do this because the psalm itself encourages 
that it gets applied in a variety of different ways. If you just look at verse 4, he tells the people that we should sing praises to the Lord, you, his faithful people. Praise his holy name. So David's saying, take what I experience in the language of my personal experience with God, and let's make this thing a song that anybody could take it and use it as a vehicle to acknowledge God's goodness. We today can use the, the lyrics of David, this song, this psalm, and we can say, this is true of God, so we will lift high his name. He is a rescuing God who comes to our aid when we cry out for his mercy and his help. Now, the pit that we find ourselves in today, I mean, as I look at the world that we find ourselves in, um, you know, obviously right now we're going through a global pandemic. COVID-19 is a novel virus, which the death count is now over 100,000 people in the United States alone. Um, we're dealing with this pit, this pit-like experience as we're all suffering in, in different ways. One of the pastor friends of mine in Rockford, he put it like this. He said, we're all going through a storm, but not all of us are in the same boat. Some people are going through a storm, but they're in, you know, maybe a luxurious yacht and it's not as challenging for them. But some of us are just in a little lifeboat and we're being capsized. So we're all going through this pandemic and it's affecting people in different ways. And I want to suggest to you that in this moment, that's kind of our pit. That's the pit-like experience that all of us are dealing with. There have been efforts to mitigate the spread by the use of executive orders like shelter in place and safer at home. But those executive orders have had effects as well that have been traumatic. There's an economic impact and some people right now are financially hurting and they're sinking down to the depths financially. There's a psychological impact to these shelter-in-place orders. Um, I mean, I think there's a, there's a reason why God said it is not good for man to be alone. We are relational beings, and so as this thing has lasted for a long, long time now, there's this, uh, what, I'm, what I'm considering to be this uh, psychological fragility that people are just emotionally fragile right now, that they've been through this experience and there's, it's been traumatic on many of us. And so there's this fragility about us. There are relational impacts to this as well. There are strained marriages. There's an increase in domestic violence. There's trouble that is abounding on every front that hits every sector of our society. And so when we look at this experience of David, we can we can identify with him, not that we were sick and we needed healing, not that we were dying. Some, I mean, obviously some people are, but all of us can say that we're having this pit-like experience. And the best thing that we might do in this moment is cry out to God for his mercy. Cry out to God for help and experience his healing. So this global pandemic really is a pit-like experience. And I think it's amplified by the division within our world that there's a politicization of everything right now, that everything is being politicized, that there's this, you know, uh, even in journalism, you hear the same story being reported on, but you're getting two very different versions of it. We find racism and hatred and a lack of civility. We, we see these awful events in our world right now. And we recognize that we are broken, that our world is broken. That, that, you know, George 
Floyd experience in Minneapolis and then the, you know, events that proceeded after that. I mean, everything is just crying out that we are living in a world right now that is racked by hurt and pain and injustice. And, and I want to suggest to you that we have this ability to cry out to a God who is a rescuing God and he longs for that rescue to come to us. I was thinking this week and it almost feels as though the Lord's prayer has been inverted. You know, the, Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But it feels as though that prayer has been inverted and what I'm seeing in our world right now doesn't feel like heaven has come to earth. It looks and smells an awful lot like a demonic activity. It feels like hell on earth. As we see all of the brokenness in our world and, and we're descending then into this pit. We're descending into this depths of the earth, into this Sheol experience. We are seeing brokenness in our world on display as racism continues to be an issue, as hatred continues to be an issue, and honestly it's showing up in every quarter and every sector. I mean it's something that we're having to acknowledge is true everywhere. That we, we wish we were in a much better place than we are right now, but our, our world is very broken. And we see it even in our own hearts as we begin to respond to some of these issues with hatred and malice and cont contempt for other people. And we villainize others instead of moving toward them in love. Guys, we're in trouble, but what I'm saying is we need to learn to cry out to God for his help. This is a moment where God can come to our rescue. And really, as I survey our options, that's the only hope that I have, is that God himself can come and bring his justice and his repairing work. So we should say, along with David, Lord my God, I call to you for help, and you healed us. So God is worthy of our praise because he is able to rescue. But secondly, we see here that God is worthy of our praise because he's able to reveal the condition of our hearts. We praise God for his revealing work in verses 4 through 10. So when we look at this section, what we find is we find ourselves in a desperate condition, crying out to God. And one of the things that he does in the midst of his rescuing work is a revealing work. He not only pulls us out of the depth, but in the midst of that, he also shows us something. He shows us what's going on at the level of our hearts. We find out things about ourselves that maybe we weren't even aware of before. And all of that is a gracious kindness that he extends to us in the midst of his goodness. And it's a part of his character. Verses 4 and 5 tell us that we can trust the revealing work because of who God is. Look at verse 4. Sing praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. God's name is holy. He is the Holy One. And we can trust him because of his nature and his character. And what is that? Look at verse 5. His anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. It's this comparison between the corrective work that God is able to do, his, his righteous anger that is aimed at injustice and wickedness and evil, and how that is expressed, but it's only momentary, whereas his favor extends well beyond that. His favor lasts a lifetime. 
Weeping, it goes on to say, weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. It's the indication of God's character. Exodus 34 tells us that God is gracious and compassionate, that he's abounding in love, that he's slow to anger. Um, that, and it goes on to make this comparison between his ability to punish and his ability to forgive, and it's, it's a thousandfold. So while we might experience the correction of God for a moment, we might weep for the night. Rejoicing is coming, and that rejoicing will go on and on and on. So God is revealing things, and he's giving us comfort because his character indicates that he is a good and gracious God. So what do we need to do? We need to repent of what we find at the foundation of our hearts. Look at verse 6. It says, When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. It's kind of ironic here because we're doing a series on being unshakable, but what we find here is this inappropriate self-confidence that expresses itself in this way. I won't ever be shaken. It sounds like a teenager. It sounds like somebody, an immature person who thinks to themselves, I will never go through hardship or difficulty. David was saying, I, when I felt secure, I thought to myself, I said, I will never be shaken. Another way that it's translated, some of the other versions, they put it like this, when I felt self-confident, I said, I will never be shaken. There's this inappropriate self-confidence that is misapplied. And when we're confident in ourselves and in what we're doing and in our adequacies and our abilities and our, and our goodness and all of those sorts of things, we might feel as though we're unshakable, but the truth is we're fragile. We are shakable. When David was sinking down into the pit, that feeling of being unshakable was stripped from him. He would no longer say that publicly. He felt desperate. He felt as though he were going to die. And the only thing that he had was the ability to cry out to God for his mercy. So we need to recognize that when God is doing a revealing work, often what he does is he shows us what we're really confident in, what we're really trusting in. And as one commentator puts it, what we find is a practical atheism. We might say that we love God and that we follow God, but, but sometimes all that we're doing is we're giving lip service to him, and in reality, we're living as if he doesn't exist. And our real confidence is in us. So we need to, when God is doing that revealing work, when we go through a trial or a, or a difficult circumstance, and God brings that to the surface, we need to repent of that. And we need to place our confidence in God and not in ourselves. Alistair Begg is a pastor and he tells a story about a young preacher who was going to preach in front of a group of older preachers for the first time and this young preacher was very confident in himself and so he was you know takes his bible and his notes up into the pulpit and as he's kind of marching up to the pulpit he kind of bounds up the steps with this swagger about him and he opens his bible and he gets himself ready and he starts to preach and he starts preaching, and as Alistair Begg tells the story, it doesn't go so well. 
And the longer and longer that it draws on, the more and more despondent this individual becomes. He gets more and more discouraged. And he finally gets done with his message and he closes up his Bible and takes his notes and you can he hangs his head and he's kind of sullenly walks back down and takes a seat. And one of the old preachers, one of the old pastors says, if he would have went up the way he came down, he would have came down the way he went up. In other words, when we march into life with this self-confidence, oftentimes we get beaten down and our head hangs low and we march out of there realizing how inadequate we truly are. But if we go in with this humility, with this reliance upon God and what God can do, then it changes us. It gives us what we like to call gospel confidence. It gives us a swagger, but it's not in our abilities, it's in our Savior. It's a confidence in who God is and what He's doing in this world. When we recognize that we need to abandon our self-salvation project of trying to convince ourselves we're so good because, look, we're online doing church. And we're people who try to obey God and we're people who try to follow God and we kind of lift up our own righteousness and we try to commend that to God and say, look, I'm a good person. When God does that revealing work, he kind of shows it for what it really is. It's not good enough. But when we have that humility to trust in his work, in his provision, in his salvation, in his rescuing work, then that's when we can have that gospel confidence. Look at how it's described in verse Seven, Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. When you favored me, Lord, I felt as though I were an immovable mountain. You made me firm. But when you withdrew your face from me, that's when I realized how fragile I truly was. I was dismayed. And the point is, we need to repent of our own self-confidence and we need to reprioritize our lives around trusting in what God can do. So we pray, verse 8, To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. As Derek Kidner says in his commentary, David is simply a man in need with only grace to appeal to. That's all of us. We need to recognize that we are in need and all that we can do is look to God and cry out for his mercy. This is how he prayed. What is gained, verse 9, what is gained if I am silenced? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? He's saying to God, God, don't, don't allow for me to, to expire here. I want to praise your name in the land of the living. I don't want to go down to the pit of death and, and, and not have the opportunity to tell other people of your faithfulness. Help me to acknowledge before others by proclaiming your faithfulness. Verse 10, hear, Lord, and be merciful to me, Lord, my help. He's showing us how to pray in this way, how to acknowledge our need for God, how to cry out to him and to say to him, God, I want to glorify you in everything that I do. I want to proclaim your faithfulness to the future generations. I, I want other people to know of their need for your mercy and your grace. Lord, you've revealed to us what our hearts are truly trusting in. Now let us proclaim your faithfulness to all who will listen. All right, the third thing that we find here 
is that we can praise God for his restorative work in verses 11 and 12. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Here's what's going on here. We can trust that we can go through that traumatic experience, whatever it might be, however we might fill that in. And if we are crying out to God for his mercy and his help, he can rescue us. He can reveal to us our own self-confidence. And we can come out on the backside having trusted in him and in his good work. We can go from wailing and we can be turned to people who are dancing and celebrating. We can go from mourning, from wearing the garments of, of loss and, and sadness, and we can be clothed instead with joy. We can have gospel confidence in what God has done. We can be filled with joy. That's what happens when we learn to stop relying on ourselves and to place our faith and our confidence in Jesus Christ alone. The saving work of God in the person and work of Jesus gives us that incredible ability. It brings us through the trial and to the place of celebration. Verse 12, so that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. Here's what we see then. We can place our confidence in Jesus Christ for our salvation, for the rescue that he alone is able to do. We can stop trusting in ourselves and we can place our faith and our confidence in him. And through that, we can believe and trust that God is a rescuing God who is able to reveal the true nature and condition of our hearts. And he's able to help us to lean in to the restorative work of Jesus Christ. And we can then go from wailing to dancing, from mourning to joy, and therefore we can praise God forever as unshakable worshipers. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would please use this sermon to minister to each of our hearts. We want to worship you. We want to glorify you. We want to praise you for who you are and what you've done. We're desperate people in need of your mercy and your grace, so we look to you. Would you be our help? Would you be our Savior? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.